you kind of relive your whole life as you do this, you know, as you get put this whole thing together. And it's it's just, um, oh my God, it's, it's just heartrending. It, it, it really is. It's, it's just like going back over your whole life at high speed or something. <laughs> joining the program today. I am Lily Tarot, the Community Outreach Archivist at Emory University Libraries, Stuart A. Rose Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library, and you are listening to Rose Library Presents Community Conversations, a series of interviews with people connected to our collections. In this final episode of Season 1, scholar and poet Nick Sturm talks with poet, editor, and publisher Maureen Owen about her publishing outfit, telephone books and magazine, mimeographs, and her own archives. Hello, my name is Nick Sturm, and I am the NEH Postdoctoral Fellow in Poetics at Emory's Fox Center for Humanistic Inquiry. And I'm so pleased to be here on Emory's campus interviewing poet, publisher, editor, bookmaker, um, extraordinaire, Maureen Owen. How are you, Maureen? Good. How are you, Nick? I'm doing so great. The weather is so beautiful in Atlanta. How is it in Colorado? Actually, it's gorgeous today. We've had a lot of rain, which is unusual. And so everything's green and the sun is out. (laughs) Maureen has been... um, an editor and publisher um, since the late 1960s, um, specifically of Telephone Magazine and Telephone Books. Um, Telephone Magazine ran for 14 years from 1969 to 1983, appearing in 19 issues. Um, Telephone Books is published from 1972 um, well into the 2000s. One of the most incredible things about, about Telephone Magazine is the incredible breadth of contributors um, that were included in this mimeograph magazine, eight and a half by 14 inches, unwieldy size, but also typical of the so-called little magazines of the 1960s, 70s, and into the early 80s. Maureen's work as as an editor and as a publisher is noteworthy for the breadth and variety of poets that are included, not not just in the magazine, but also in, in the books themselves. And it's something that's regularly celebrated about your work as a publisher. I wonder how you came to that editorial policy, if we could even call it that, or if it was more off the cuff, more natural, more organic for you, this idea of of a real a real inclusivity. So we talk a lot about inclusivity and community um, in the literary world, but I think Telephone embodies it in a way that is still unstudied. Um, and we can talk more about those details, but I wonder just how you came to that position as an editor. I was in New York um, for the first time and uh, meeting a lot of poets. I wanted it to be inclusive, and I had a really strong sense of the community there and uh, and that a lot of people weren't getting published because, you know, it's not that easy to get published, especially if you're unknown. I thought Ma Bell was, like, um, having a lot of trouble right then, so the telephone company was sort of in the news. And I don't know if that influenced me or not, but... Um, I thought to be inclusive, how great it would be to uh, have a magazine that was like the telephone book that included everyone, 
which of course is impossible, but, <laughs> but that was kind of the idea behind it. And also, um, I was from the West Coast and the mid Midwest, and there people just kind of drop in on each other. And when I came to New York, I dropped in on a few people, but that wasn't a very good idea because most people were up all night for one thing. And I had two little kids, so I would drop in in the early morning when <laughs> they're just going to bed usually. So you kind of had to call first. So it was kind of in the air. And, and then, you know, at that time, all over New York City, on every street corner practically, there were telephone booths. And it was just, it was just kind of something I noticed. And, and then I and kind of fed into the community idea and the idea of communication and inclusiveness. And this is around the same time that John Giorno was starting his experiments with telephones, right? Yes, that's true. Yeah. Well, maybe telephone was just in the air. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and you came to New York in 1968, is that right? That's right. The summer of 68. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about this before in emails um, that we've exchanged over the last year. Um, but I wanted to go backwards from the start of telephone because you said something really interesting to me when you were talking about your pre-New York um, narrative, which is that um, you said that you'd fallen by graceful luck into the beats. And mm -hmm. I think that's there is a version of that that a, a lot of writers of your generation say, and what they usually mean by it is that they started reading literature um, and they got into literature by reading the beats. But you mean something a little bit different by that you've fallen uh, into graceful luck with the beats. Right. No, I was, I was definitely reading poetry um, since I was very young, really. Uh, I think I, um, I initially got, got into it um, because of um, being Irish and uh, in a household where there was a lot of storytelling and um, Irish music and, and Irish lyrics. And then that was when I was in Minnesota on the farm and then when I went to California, then I started discovering poets in the libraries. And um, sort of an aside, but <laughs> we, were kind of, we were kind of poor, but we went to, my brother and I went to parochial school. And so we had to wear a uniform. And um, the, the wealthier kids, of course, had a uniform for every day of the week, but we only had one uniform for each other. So I had to wash and iron that uniform every two days. So what I would do is prop a book of poems up on the end of the ironing board. And while I ironed, uh, I would memorize poems. So I memorized like hundreds of poems. <laughs> so, but I, the way I fell into the beats was more um, that I really, I really hadn't, I hadn't read them because I was reading books out of the library, mostly in small town in California. I went up to San Francisco and literally by some miraculous grace I walked into City Lights bookstore I, I just because it was a bookstore and and was looking around and I picked up uh, Gregory Corso's Happy Birthday of Death and I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever read in my life <laughs> <laughs> then I really got into reading the beats and you had a, a a close friend in high school named James Bearden. Is that right? Right. And that's how I've met a few people. Um, Jim and I were in high school together um, down in Monrovia, California. And so when I was up in San Francisco, he came up to visit me and um, we went over to, I didn't know his brother at all, but we went over to his brother's house apartment. Um, and that was David Bearden. 
so through David Bearden, I met Charlie Pymel and went to a few readings and, you know, saw Ellen Ginsberg. And, and then I was hanging out with all those guys. So uh, I saw Neil Cassidy a few times and, you know, things like that. So it was just very fortuitous. Yeah. And this is in the, the early mid 60s? Yes, that would be the early 60s. Yeah. So you, that's really right in the middle of everything. David Bearden um, was best friends in Tulsa, Oklahoma with Ron Padgett and Joe Brainerd, Ted Berrigan, yeah. Dave Gallup. Right. So it's interesting to me because it's sort of this group of, of poets and writers um, and visual artists who were. Um, part of the so-called B generation, but then there's also like a, a merger or emergence of this um, like descendants of those groups. Um, and that it's bi-coastal. We're talking about the West Coast in San Francisco and the Bay Area. And then um, these folks who also end up in New York in a couple of years, but also just emerging from the Midwest, which often you know, isn't a story that's told about these kind of the new American poetry that it isn't just a bi-coastal network, but you're from Minnesota. A lot of these poets were living in Oklahoma. When you're in San Francisco and you're hanging out with um, with Bearden, um, with Lauren Owen, did you know at that time that poetry is what you were going to be spending your life doing? Well, you know, I'd written, I, I wrote and painted since I was very, very young. And so um, I think, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't even just was what I was doing, you know, I mean, I, I didn't, um, I didn't announce it to myself, sort of. <laughs> it announced itself to me in a way. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So what, what makes you interested in that? You know, I, I started out on a small farm in Minnesota. We had like three books in the house. Um, um, but you know, a lot of, a lot of oral storytelling and Irish kinds of things. And, music um but what what makes you you know my my great aunt ani um who was who had passed away when i was born by the time i was born but she was a school teacher but she was also a painter and so there were there were three or four of her paintings hanging in the living room of the farm and somehow i just gravitated towards those very very young and started making drawings of them and was completely um you know, just drawn to them in, in this way. Having proximity to these individual pieces of art, like who knows what it's going to do to you. I know. Um, as I a know. young person. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting because there wasn't any other art around, but somehow that those paintings drew me. So I don't know, maybe you're born with some weird quirk. <laughs> <laughs> well, that reminds me of something else that you said Um in the, there's a document called the Oral History of the Poetry Project that was compiled by the poet Bob Holman in 1978. Um, it's still unpublished, this really incredible document. Um, but in the oral history, it's like a chorus of voices describing the history of the Poetry Project um, over roughly the first 10 to 12 years, which was founded in 1966. So two years before you arrived in New York, Maureen. Mm -hmm. And um, you're one of the people that, that Bob Holman interviewed talking about the history of the project. And you said, uh, quote, I'm sort of a misfit. People were leaving town when I showed up this was in 1968. Mm. Only important things happened before my time. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a member of the core group. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me. 
Yeah, I only think of myself as not the second generation, but the two and a half. The project had like consolidated in 1966. And I mean, it was really getting off the ground still when, when you arrived. But like you're saying, there were a lot of people that had been around in New York since the early 60s who were leaving New York for the first time. So there was a little bit of a change in the community around the project for the very first time, which you were a part of when you arrived. It sounds like you're saying that there was some sort of kind of pressure taken off of you um, because only important things happen before your time, but you arriving after that is the best thing that ever happened. <laughs> I don't know if it's pressure, but it was it was kind of like groundwork, you know, because I had just arrived into this uh, established community where all these incredible artists and poets and, uh, and all this was going on already. So, so it was just... Uh, it was just like a perfect environment almost, you know, so inspiring. And there's so many, everybody was doing art and painting and making collages and, and writing and publishing little magazines that it was just, it was alive, you know? So I was, I really, I really lucked out. <laughs> you, you said to me in an email about that moment, you said, I felt freer than I'd ever felt in my life. It might sound corny, but I literally felt reborn into a place where people were like me. Yeah. And, you know, when you said that, I, I thought that was so wonderful because I don't think that that's corny at all. <laughs> and there, you can't underestimate the power of suddenly being in a community like that and, and feeling like you have autonomy and you can participate. I mean, was, was Ann Waldman already the director of the project then when you arrived? Yes, she was. Yeah. The poetry project was so, um, so open, so generous even though I, I, I hung out with a lot and uh, knew a lot of the beat poets, it was, a, it was a different, very different environment than in New York, very, very different. And, and the Poetry Project was just, um, just opened its doors, basically, to people could just come and get information, use a, use a mimeograph machine, get Stettner. And was completely open and generous with the project. And the project wasn't the only place where there are readings too, right? There's a whole network of readings happening in New York at that time. And those readings, you said before, are places where you were soliciting a lot of work for, for Telephone Magazine once it started, right? Right. Well, and I went to the readings to hear people, you know, and and, it, and if, I, if I liked the reading, I would ask them, you know, if they wanted to submit some poems because I was doing this little magazine. And tell me if I'm wrong about this. I have the sense you know, from, from knowing you the way that I do and the way that other people talk about your work, that you're like a really good literary community member, like really great, like excellent and only ever supportive and about strengthening the communities that you participate in, which is, you know, not something that you're able, one's able to say about everyone that you encounter and yeah. from, from these communities. Yeah. Which isn't just to say, like, you're really great, Maureen, but, like, you are really great. Like, you did so much for these communities. And I just want to emphasize that because not only were you editing Telephone Magazine and Telephone Books, but you became really integral to the Poetry Project as an institution throughout the 70s and 80s and, and even after that. Right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I, I did a lot at the Poetry Project. <laughs> From stacking chairs to being coordinator and... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And that was a natural progression for you, I imagine, to, to move into leadership roles at the project. 
Yeah. Again, you know, I just, um, I gravitated there and it was such an open place. And I, and that was very close to where we lived on 13th street. So I probably, I went to everything I could there and just started helping out and then, you know, kind of moved up and. Well, in the oral history, you and and Ron Padgett emerges these very solid voices in your descriptions of the history (laughs) of the project. Um, and when we talked about this before, you had mentioned something like you and you and Ron have like the let's put this in order bug. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably true. We both have that. Uh, let's let's get this organized and, uh, you know, let's really get down to business sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's like, you know, sometimes poets get a, a bad rap for not being good administrators or um um, directors of, of arts organizations, for example. The Poetry Project has al- always been an institution that's been run by poets. Yeah. And um, there's something to be said for that kind of organizational consistency um, that folks like you have brought to these communities. Um, and even in the oral history of the Poetry Project, you describe this, this need um, in the late 1970s to think about, you quote, setting up an archive at the church. Uh, and also reimagining, again, this is about 10 to 12 years into the history of the project, you said, I'd like to see certain directions, seeing things through, see more women reading. The Poetry Project is a male-dominated organization, and it's just not healthy. An archive, so much has been lost, which is sort of the price you pay for spontaneity and casualness. Things don't always get recorded. What I thought was interesting about that is the way that these two conversations merge together for you. You're talking about the need to establish an archive to record this history of this experimental arts community uh, for posterity. At the same time, you're thinking about the need for a shift in um, representation of who's performing, who's reading. Mm-hmm. And the Poetry Project had been run by, um, by women, by Ann Waldman. Um, later by Bernadette Mayer, Eileen Miles. Mm-hmm. Um, you were in a leadership position. But I wondered if you could say a little bit about that moment at the project in the late 1970s when, when things were shifting. Well, for the, as far as the archive goes, um, we always recorded the readings um, and any kind of event like that just on a little cassette machine because that's all we had. But then... Um, by, by great luck, again, the, the uh, basement of the church at St. Mark's has just the right atmosphere, just the right balance of humidity and dryness. I don't know. Somehow those tapes survived and then were finally, you know, recorded. And there always was that kind of the sense, you know, that we should we should be documenting this. Um, but there wasn't always the funds to do it in a real professional way and again too uh the project did so many things you know like it, was, it was a very busy place you know doing the newsletter magazines uh workshops everything was going on all the time so if you worked in the office you were super busy it's that whole thing of when you're so busy doing something you don't have time to document what you're doing you know you don't have time to think about it i said there as male dominated yeah well, in a sense, yes, because there were more guys, but but they were most of them were very helpful, very open to to women, you know, 
It sounds to me almost like, you know, in this comment in the oral history about it being male-dominated, you're sort of insisting that there's a choice that you could, that the community could make to include more women. Not that women weren't being included or that they were being excluded, but there's a choice. Right, yeah. they were. And, you know, there were women doing, like Susan Cataldo doing a little magazine. There were women doing things and, and, and reading, too. But it was kind of a residue from the past that was floating still where the big names were the guys that kind of perpetrated itself in a, in a way that the people that were perpetrating it didn't even mean to, you know, it was like almost unintentional, but that was just the flow. Right. And trying to point out your, the, yeah, this is upholding a particular tradition, which yeah. ends up excluding folks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there just weren't that many women previously getting published you know in poetry yeah and telephone was doing so much important work to change that i mean you were publishing women poets like susan howe rebecca brown rebecca wright um just to name a few sandy berrigan yeah susan cataldo yeah susan cataldo Mm -hmm. and then other folks who don't get talked about a lot like um yuki hartman oh right yeah great poet yeah. What was um, Yuki Hartman was around the project in the seventies, right? What what happened to him? He still lives in New York, and um, he's had I think a couple of publications, re- you know, in the recent years from uh, Hanging Loose Press. Oh yeah, yeah, uh-huh. uh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, I, I love his work. He's, he really is a good writer. But he's on. So Yuki's like a perfect example of um, um, just kind of reticent, you know, and I think. I think the way I got into his work was I heard him read and then I asked him for some work for telephone. And then um, I just loved his work so much that that's how I did the book of his. I feel like I'm, you know, I'm also from the Midwest. I'm from Ohio. I feel like um, your, there's a kind of um, your approach to, to publishing is, is Midwestern in a way. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong about this. It's almost like there's a kind of, there's a niceness about it where you're embracing these quiet people Mm. on the edges so to say yeah you know, it's not about publicity it's not about you know bright lights and big names it, it's not about upholding a particular tradition it's about the people who are around you who you see participating in this activity together and who are doing it equitably right. and quietly mm-hmm, that's true and and, mm-hmm. well, and also i think the the wonderful thing about to me at the time to, to be able to do a magazine was that I could publish whatever I liked. I mean, I was totally, for better or for worse, I mean, you had to do all the work too. But, <laughs> but, but being a single editor, I could just, whenever I saw work I liked, I could just ask people or, you know, uh, so I could just publish anything I liked. So that made it even more inclusive and um, open, kind of. I didn't, I didn't have a single singular idea about certain school or a certain kind of poetry i was interested in the language poets i was interested in new york school but i but i wasn't interested in those two things i was interested in the poets yeah and so so that kind of that kind of included everybody just by that attitude but and you're right maybe it is a little midwestern you know (laughs) and maybe even telephone you know it's a party line (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm trying to speak up for for the legacies of uh, of Midwestern, you know, personality um, in the new American poetry and all that. That's, oh, well, that's you know, definitely. I mean, a lot of the poets in Telephone, you know, when people started sending me submissions, were from the Midwest. And then you have incredible Midwest people like Dave Maurice, you know, who did comics. I mean, there's a lot going on out in the Midwest. It reminds me too of one of the things I've really appreciated about being in touch with you over the last year is that you'll email me every now and then and say, um, Hey Nick, I just saw this thing that you did. And are you also thinking about this person? <laughs> and, it's, and it's always a person who has been um, historically unstudied or, or underrepresented in scholarship. And yeah. I, I think I really appreciate these sort of these prompts to remember. Not annoying, like you, at least. No, not annoying at all. It's so wonderful because you're, I think it's, I see it in total continuity with what you've always done with telephone, which is to say like, there are these people who, um, who haven't been given space. Right. right? right. And that's still the case. Dropped, yeah. Kind of dropped out of sight. There were so many people on the scene at, at that time and um, they don't get mentioned like they should, you know, uh, they don't get remembered. Yeah. And some of them still, still writing and working. Right. Right. And I, just your work as an advocate for those folks, it, it's a clearly such a natural um, position for you to take. And um, you're never trying to take up any space of your own when you do that. I can always tell. Um, it's just, <laughs> it's just really a pleasure, right? To, oh, thanks for you. Yeah, yeah, I didn't really put in much of my own work at all on telephone. Um, the only time I did was um, if I had, if I had, uh, I was really, I was very conscientious of space on the page and allowing the poet to have space on the page. But if I had a very short poem at the top and then a lot of space on the bottom, I would, I would write a little poem or do a drawing or something. And then I would not use my name. I would put it in again on someone else's name, a name I used uh, for a, Bridget Bridget Holland, I think I do, um, because uh, I always wanted to be named Bridget, and uh, Bridget Phelan was one of my ancestors, and so I didn't I didn't put Phelan because I thought that might give it away just in case somebody knew my mother's maiden name, um, so I, I I took the P off, and so Bridget Fallen or something. <laughs> And, and and the issues of telephone, when you say, you know, being able to put anything you want in, um, the, the early issues were like between 30 and 40 pages. Mm -hmm. but, but by the late 70s, those issues were um, over 130, up to 150 pages each. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, I started getting um, so many submissions. It, it didn't take too long, actually, which is interesting because um, in the first three or four issues, um you know, we would just collate. I'd get a big collating party. People would come. And then everybody would take a few copies to distribute. And I would mail it out to, like, a small mailing list that I had. So I, I was surprised that it got disseminated as much as it did. And, you know, people in England would write to me and stuff. So that was kind of interesting. You feel that poetry network just like a river it just carries it wherever and it's my understanding that um here at emory at the rose library that we are the the first institution to have everything from telephone at least right now for yeah. the time being right. yeah <laughs> so we're really fortunate here um i'm so happy you have that archive 
I know. Yeah, the Donowski collection, um, I mean, is as you know, is is really unprecedented and incredible. Yeah. And phenomenal. what you're saying. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just gonna say it's phenomenal. It's it's an amazing collection. Really. Right. It is, it is. I, I feel so lucky to be in proximity to it. And what you're saying about these folks who um, you know, people like Greg Masters or Gary Lenhart, who just recently yeah. passed away, um, mm-hmm. that the work to be done on those poets and on telephone and on your work, you know, is going to come out of archives like this, I think, and hopefully be generated out of conversations like this. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> I was thinking back to, um, you mentioned the mimeograph machine at the, um, poetry project at St. Mark's and the Gestetner, which is the, the brand of mimeograph machine that they had at the project. Um, did you always, I, you, you said repeatedly what the story is about, um, starting out doing telephone that, um, is it Larry Fagan and Tom Beach taught you how to use the mimeograph at the project? No, I came, I went over to the project cause I had gotten this bee in my bonnet. Maybe how I could do a magazine, which I had no idea. Um, so I went over and talked to Anne and she said, sure, you could use the Gestetner. You know, give me. Uh, and Larry was, I think, I don't know if Larry was working in the office then, or he just hung out there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It could have been either one, but, um, uh, but um, I said, well, oh, oh that's great. Can you sort of give me step one, step two, step three? And um, she said, well, I'll give you, um, I'll give you a lesson on the Gestetner, and you have to get some stencils. And so Larry, Larry was already doing adventures in poetry, so he sweetly said, um, oh, here, I'll tell you where you can buy some stencils, and I'll show you how to type stencils. So he really taught me how to type stencils. Mm-hmm. I think stencils is just the, the worst part of it. Let's say that. Um, so for you know, what, what Maureen's describing, so for a mimeograph machine, you have to you have a stencil, which is like almost like kind of um, almost like a tissue paper quality to it. Yeah, it's very, you, very fragile, kind of fragile. Mm-hmm. And you have to set it up on your typewriter, and you have to type it very carefully. And if you make a mistake, there's stencil correction fluid. But you can only get away with that like a one time. And then if you don't line it up right, your letter's in the wrong place, you know. So, and and you have to hit the keys and, the, you know, you're just using a typewriter. So you have to hit the keys very uniformly because that's how it's, the ink's going to distribute on the paper um, with that kind of pressure. So, um, so it's it. Typing the stencil was the hardest part. But my my favorite thing was I, I got this idea. I wanted to do some art in it. I wanted to do some drawings. And I thought, how can I do drawings? Um, and then I realized, and I didn't know about light tables at this point. Later on, mm-hmm. I thought, how to build a light table. But um, I could just put the stencil up on the window pane and, and trace on it if I had a drawing from somebody. Um, and that actually worked pretty well. So, so that was good. So Larry taught me how to type stencils. And then I got the stencils typed and I came back to the project. And um, Larry and Ann told me about this um, paper where there are a lot of wonderful real paper warehouses then down in Soho. Like, it, I mean, it's a different world then, you know. And so I went down to the paper warehouse and um, I was, it was incredible. You just walked into this room and they were like making paper. You could hear large sounds all over the place. And it was just this cavernous room full of paper. 
just so unbelievably beautiful paper of all colors and shades. It was like an exotic forest of parrots or something for it. Oh my gosh. Inside of a rainbow or so, and paper of all textures and oh my God. And so what they told me was you could get really cheap remnants of paper. And so um, there was one guy there, it was Apernon, he was, he was just a workman. Um, but they didn't really sell paper there. You know, they sold it to, to other places that sold paper. But, you, but they would sell you remnants and stuff. So he said, well, just look around, you know, and stuff. So I was in heaven. I mean, oh, my God, these beautiful papers. And then that was when I first saw the eight and a half by 14 sheet. And I looked at that because I hadn't really, well, I typed the stencils though. So I must've had it in my mind. But anyway, I was able to buy remnants of the eight and a half by 14. Then I got the paper. So then I went back to the project. <laughs> and, and then when I came, um, Anne gave me a lesson on the mimeograph. And, and she's she great. But so busy, you know. And, and <laughs> I can imagine Anne teaching someone in Mimeo. You would be like, can you go over that again? And she can't. No. And she's like, it's very easy. We just put this on here. And <laughs> she was a math friend, so it seemed really simple to her. So I was like, oh, my God, I don't know if I can do this. And then I think Tom Beach was there, or, or I saw him somewhere. And I said, and I was talking about, I don't know how i'm going to be able to do this by myself and he said well i'll help you run i know how to run the mimeo i'll help you so he really ran off the first issue mm -hmm. which was just wonderful and and i just remember standing there and watching the first sheet come off the mimeograph machine and it worked this <laughs> like magic because i had no idea i had no idea really how the whole machinery of it that you would finally see the poem there on the piece of paper you know, mm -hmm. up in black ink and that it really worked. I, I think I must have screamed, it worked, it worked or something. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't it, wasn't it the case that you typed all the stencils, but they were on the wrong kind of stencil for the Mimeo, uh, like first yeah. too? But yeah, I, I, I made a lot of stencil mistakes. <laughs> finally, I got it right. Yeah, I think I typed, I typed quite a few stencils that were wrong. Backwards, mm -hmm. I can't remember now. <laughs> Or like, yeah, like um, like an A.B. Dick uses like a four, A.B. Dick Mimeos use a four-hole stencil and Gestetner uses a unique nine-hole stencil. There's all sorts of idiosyncrasies to the production. But then you actually became like a real advocate for mimeograph publishing. Oh my gosh, a town was just great. We did the whole first issue and finally I was running it. And after that, I could do it by myself easily. And Anna was right. It, it wasn't that hard. You know, it's a machine. So, you know, you have to ink it and sometimes the stencil would slide off or break or rip or, you know, so there's all kinds of complications, but it's just a matter of knowing how to do it, you know, and, mm -hmm. and go on with it. And, um, and yeah. And I love the movie. You know, I love machines. I, I love the yeah. machine like that. I recently came across that video. It's really not bizarre necessarily, but really strange. Uh, this a Swiss TV show from the early 1980s where they recorded for a few weeks in the Poetry Project, and I'd recently found the recording. Oh, um, and, yeah. and there's a, there's an image of you and Ron in the office at the Poetry Project. I think it's 1980 or 1981, and Ron is 
is sitting there with his his glasses and a little cap, and he's <laughs> typing on the typewriter. Um, and Probably you, newsletter or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you're in the background. You've got an apron on, and you're answering the phone at the same time that you're running off copies on the electric Kostetner behind yeah. Ron. I mean, it's an incredible moment. Yeah. I've actually seen you yeah. all working together and like it was busy, like you're saying about the church. Yeah, like it was totally busy. Yeah. Yeah. You're on the phone a lot and you know, and you had to set up all the readings and, and then funding. I mean, it was completely busy and the office was always busy. And because uh, the office was so open, People just felt they could drop in, which was great because they could. Um, so the office was usually half full of people too, who were just like hanging out, you know, chatting. <laughs> There's like Bob Bob Holman's over in the corner listening to tapes and transcribing tapes. Yeah, everybody was always doing something different, or yeah. So it was a it was a real hubbub of, you know, creativity and and getting things done and doing things. Yeah, very exciting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then in the early, um, one of the things I've been working on recently is, um, is reading through the full history of the Poetry Project newsletter. Oh. And there, this is where I first learned about this Swiss TV show that I was just describing. Oh. Greg Masters had described it in one of the issues. Like, yeah. everyone, don't worry about all of the people recording all the time around the project. Um <laughs> But there's also descriptions from the early 80s of a, I think it's 1984, um, you ran a mimeograph workshop at the project. Right, yeah. Because something interesting was happening in the early 1980s where there were still a lot of mimeograph magazines around, but definitely not as many as there had been in the 60s and 70s. And there was a kind of last generation of mimeograph magazines around 83, 84, like um, Susan Cataldo's a little light yeah. and uh, blue smoke. Mm -hmm. um, Mag City was just ending. Telephone was just ending. Yeah. Um, why did you feel like um, that was the moment for a mimeograph workshop at the project? I think I probably um, just from talking to people who who said, you know, no, oh, I'd like to do a magazine, and I'd be like, oh, you could, you know, <laughs> don't let anything stop you, you know. Um, and and I love uh, I love teaching, uh, I, lo I love you know teaching poetry workshops and things. But I but I love teaching um, how to make books and how to run the mimeo and and the things you can do when you're it's it, you have such freedom when you're making your own book or making somebody's book. You can you can put in you know like I put in in pages cutting up the New York Times fashion shots and magazines and stuff and. You can use rubber stamps. You can just, you can make a really beautiful object. And if you're only doing like 500 copies, you can rubber stamp 500 copies. It's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I want to start a small press now. I know. It's so fun. You were in New York um, and then Connecticut as well. You were right. living um, outside of New Haven. Is that right? About 15 minutes from New Haven? Yeah. Guilford, Connecticut. Um, that's a story. Um Quickly, I had heard Suki, Susan Howe read, and then I'd asked her for some work for a telephone, and, and she was, nobody was publishing her. I mean, this is just, I don't know, it's weird. Uh, so, um, and then I thought, well, I'd love to do a little book. So Suki came in. She was she was already living in Connecticut. She had been in New York, but um, her husband, David Von Schlegel, was a sculptor, and he got a job at Yale running this department. 
So they moved up to Connecticut not too long before. And so anyway, so she arrived in the apartment up on 110th Street, just just in a flurry. You have to know City people. And we said, so I said, oh my God, I can't believe I don't live in New York anymore. I take hours on the train to get in there. I had to go through Grand Central, get down here. I, I just, this is, I just can't believe it. I I hate Connecticut. I, you know, I hate living out there. I was like, so then she calmed down. We had some tea. We talked about the book and, and it was all good. And then the kid, I had, my boys were there just playing and stuff. And so then, then we were, after we were talking about the book and getting all that settled, um, we just started chatting, you know, and I said, you know, I think I really have to move out of the city because for school for the kids, because I didn't have money for a private school. There was this little silence. And then she said, oh, my God, move to Guilford, move up to Connecticut. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's right on the Women <laughs> said, it's a quick train ride and you're back in the city. You can still project. That was just a fun thing ever. But that's, oh, that's what I did. I, then later, I went up. We went up to visit her, and we ended up in Guilford. Which and was, a lot of poets ended up visiting um, yeah, Connecticut because of that. That Guilford place was so fun because it was just this old salt box house and really cold in the winter and a wood burning stove and stuff. But it had a, like an acre of land and you know enough rooms that people could come up and hang out. And so that that was really fun. We had a lot of visitors there. As a kind of final thing. Recently, there's been a lot of attention to, um, to telephone magazine, telephone books, um, and to your archive um, in particular. And you've recently placed your archive at an institution. And I, I wondered if you could say a little bit about um, just the process of organizing and, and placing your archive and your materials and what's been going on with, with uh, telephone, um, granary books, put together a telephone um, collection mm-hmm. um, and just what that's what that process has been like for you well it's interesting um, when you're doing your own personal archive like with letters and that, that sort of thing and I, I the first half of my archive is actually at uh, UCSD University of yeah. um, and then the second is going to be at DU um, Putting together, the, especially the first archive, but no, even the second one, uh, is just, what should I say? It's, it's just gut-wrenching or something because I kind of, I read every letter over to be sure I wasn't putting a letter in there from someone that had something, you know, mm. just robbed the bank or <laughs> something bad in it. Um, and you sort of you kind of relive your whole life as you do this, you know, as you get put this whole thing together, and it's it's just um, oh my god, it's it's just heartrending. It is, it really is. It's it's just like going back over your whole life at high speed or something. <laughs> so uh, for a personal archive, especially with letters and things, that I, I found that really. Um, Really exhausting, mm-hmm. and, and but for the for the magazine and the and the books, I'm uh, so happy to have them go to an archive and, and a collection because I never could do that anthology and and uh, just it's just fantastic and I'm so thankful for the archives and 
you know, all the work you guys do there. And, um, that that's just been great. And of course, working with Steve play is always wonderful. Well, we would love, we would love to, you know, of course, to, to host you in some capacity here at, at Emory in the future. And I hope that we can. And I, I'm so glad that your second set of papers are, are placed and that there's been this renewed attention to telephone. I know that Mary Catherine is, is working on uh, more telephone related projects, yes, been which good. is great news. Yeah. Yeah, there's um, her interview is coming out in uh, Among the Neighbors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A wonderful pamphlet series yeah. at the University of Buffalo, edited by Edric Mesmer. Yeah. Right. So, and I think he's going to do because we went on and on in that interview. So I think he's going to do a double issue for us. <laughs> nice. Of course, it would be a double issue. Telephones are so big. Like we. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, thank yeah, thank you so much, Maureen. It was so nice to talk to you. Oh, well, thank you, and thanks for all you do there. It's great. Community Conversations is produced by Lily Terrell and Nick Twimlow. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor. Music created by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library, Jennifer King, director of the Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to Maureen Owen, Nick Sturm, and the Emory Center for Digital Scholarship. As we wrap up season one, we extend our gratitude to all of our guests for the insightful conversations they contributed during this inaugural season. To our graphic designer, Caroline Corbett, for her spectacular series logos, and to our listeners. Thank you for your ongoing support, and we look forward to more community conversations with you in season two. For more information about Rose Library and our other podcast series, Behind the Archives and Atlanta Intersections, please visit us at rose.library.emory.edu and follow us on Rose Library's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find Community Conversations and our other podcasts on all your favorite podcast feeds. <laughs>